Today's scripture reading is James chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come before you to hear your very and true and inspiring word. We pray that as we hear it, Lord Father, that it would affect our hearts and that it would transform our hearts to make our hearts long more for you. Father, you have promised to be in the midst of your people. And here we all are waiting to understand your presence, to understand your word, to understand your grace. Be with all of us. Let the congregation have ears to hear, and let their hearts be open. Be with me as I speak. Let the Spirit take my words and infuse them into the hearts of the people so that they may know that these words are from you. And together, let us worship your holy name, for that is what is most important in this world. And we thank you, God. Be with us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So with the new year, we begin a new series, and we start with the book of James. And with the book of James, we are introduced to a concept of trials. Now, it's appropriate that our first sermon would deal with trials. And as, if you look back, and um, if any of you have Facebook, you would have noticed that no one seems to like 2016. Everyone says, good riddance, thank you, I'm glad that's over, we're looking forward to another 2017. But what most people know is that 2017 is going to be much like 2016. It's going to be full of trials. It's going to be difficult. Every year gets harder, not necessarily easier. 
And so as we come, James gives us this fact that things will never get easier here on earth. We might have pockets or glimpses of comfort or easiness. For most of our life, it will be difficult and tough. And we should expect this for the Christian. We should understand that because we are Christian, because we follow Christ, we will endure trials and tribulations. But before we go on to that, I want to give us just a framework of what we can expect from the book of James and what we are going to encounter. James does not have an overall theme. They have pockets of themes, but it is not one nice unified letter. What we suspect is James is writing to a particular group, a particular time. And so you may notice that even in the preaching, uh, when David and I preach, that it may not always come together coherently. Not that we always preach coherently. But um, as one theologian said, Martin Luther, as he looked at the book of James, he says it was, just seems that things are thrown together, together chaotically. Or most theologians don't even think the book of James belongs in the Bible. If you study church history, there has always been this debate or this underlying debate whether James should be part of the canon and why. Well, it's because theologians don't find anything really sexy in James. There's no doctrines of justification. There's no hypostatic union. There's no talk about sanctification and glorification and atonement for sin. Rather, it's immensely practical. And so they say, maybe it doesn't belong in the Bible. This is just a guidebook. But if you read James... And if you read other theologians, you would see that they refer to James quite often. Even this theologian, Martin Luther, quoted James often. Even though he didn't think or didn't really like it or appreciate it as much, subconsciously he knew that there was rich treasures that came from the book of James. One thing about James is is that it is immensely practical. It explains how the Christian ought to live, how the Christian should act in the face of trials, how it should think of their brothers and sisters, and how they should control their tongue. The book of James will be very applicable for us today, because we sitting here are Christians. We are the beloved children of God. And it would do us well to hear the words of James and apply them to our lives. So who wrote the book of James? Well, that's easy. James. But which James? And I just want to say that I do. there has been some debate, but it has come down decidedly on one person. James, Jesus' brother, is the one who wrote the book. James the Just. We know that James the Just was a prominent um, person in the early church. We know that James was the younger brother of Jesus. Younger brother, not older, younger brother of Jesus. And it's important to understand that James saw himself as a servant of the Lord. You see, there's this debate because it would... 
there's this debate because some people say if James was truly the brother of Jesus, he surely would have mentioned it in his letter. He would say, you need to listen to me because Jesus is my big bro. But it's actually interesting, and I think it's in um, line with the way James writes, is that his most important relationship to Jesus is the one he sees himself as, a servant to the Savior, to the King. His earthly, familiar family relationship was secondary to the most important relationship he had with Christ. And that was being his son and being his servant. When we read James and when we look at James, we will see a singularity or a single purpose or intent of James in showing us that the most important things in this world are not the worldly things, but the spiritual things. James could have boasted it on his resume. I grew up with Jesus. But he found those things again secondary to the most important thing about Jesus. That he was his savior. and That he was the savior of the church. And so it is with this understanding we come to the book of James. To hear what James has to say. To understand his passion and his desire for the church to live out the gospel, to hear it and live it out so that people would come to faith. So we come and see, as he greets the church, the first thing he says to the church is this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now that's an interesting thing to say. Why would his first words be, count it pure joy, or count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials? Why would James say that? Well, first, it does help to know to whom he's speaking to. He's speaking to, as he says, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So to our understanding, James is speaking to Jewish Christians who are now scattered out throughout the Middle East. If you've read Acts 7 or Acts 8, you would know that the church started in Jerusalem, and then because of persecution, they all had to scatter and spread out. And so James writes to those people. And instead of saying, I understand your pain, or instead of saying, don't worry, help is coming, he says, be happy. Be happy that you are going through these trials. And that should strike us odd. That's not something you would normally say. But yet, it is a sentiment that is shared throughout in the scripture. Romans 5.3, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in our sufferings. And it will go on to say that Christians, all Christians, will endure suffering and they should count it as a privilege and as an honor. And why? Why should they count it as an honor or why should they find joy in these trials? And the reasoning is always the same. It's because it produces perseverance. James 1.3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness 
or we can translate perseverance. Romans 5.3 says, Rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And so do we suffer to, for the mere fact that we can say that we have persevered? No, of course not. Because the ultimate goal in the Christian life is for that endurance, that perseverance to flush itself out and make us holy. To come before God and say, we are holy. And the fires and the trials that come our way only serve us to make us more faithful to the Lord. We rejoice because God is ultimately using these times of trial and suffering to make us more in his son's image. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more, but there are some important things we have to understand before we move on. First is this. Anytime this verse is read or is to be understood, it must always be understood in light of the gospel. We must understand the gospel before we can even, before these, this verse would even make sense. The ground for joy during trials is the gospel. You must first understand that Jesus Christ loves you. That he has died for you and that he has raised again. Now why is this so important? Because when we go through suffering and trials as Christians, we must understand that we are not being punished. There are some people who teach that we are in certain trials or we are suffering for certain reasons because we have sin in our lives. And that is completely false. As God's children, God does not punish his children. He does not punish his kids. He does not punish his loved ones. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, that was the final punishment for sin. Jesus' death on the cross makes it so that we never have to get punished. And so we should never think that during our trials and our sufferings, we are getting punished for something. But it doesn't answer the question, then why are we going through these trials? And I don't think James really answers that. He just acknowledges that it happens, that it's there. Sometimes our trials and sufferings, we may not understand why we go through it. There may not be a clean explanation. And in the Bible, we never go searching for those answers. God never says, search for the answers of why you are suffering. He just simply says, rejoice. We don't know why it's happening, but rejoice. Now, for some of you, you may say, I don't know. I feel like God does test us. Maybe, maybe these trials and sufferings so that we would always choose him. But in James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So right there, you are not being tested or tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So through the testing and suffering, you are not going through a test. God is not saying, I want to see if you're going to make it. I'm going to see if you choose me. There's none of that. 
Again, so you, you see why this verse is so important that we understand the gospel first. We are loved. We are cherished. Suffering and trials may come our way and we may not know why. But there is a purpose. And that's all it intends to say. That our suffering is not meaningless. That our suffering does have a reason. And let me tell you what the reason is. It's not a mystery. The reason is so that our faith would grow. That we would become more and more dependent upon Christ. That is the purpose of our trials and tribulations. That we would begin to flex our faith muscles. The purpose is in everything in our lives is so that we would become more like Jesus and come closer to him. And I think it's important at this time to address a misapplication of this doctrine. Most oftentimes, people use this doctrine, even though it's right, at the wrong time. So that happens a lot. We use the, the doctrine is true. The doctrine is good, but we misapply it. Let me give you examples. Say someone comes up to me and says, Pastor Jeffrey, I lost my job. And I can simply say, God is sovereign. It's true, but that doesn't really help, or nor does that make the person feel better. Because then they would think, so God made me lose my job. A lot of times through trials and tribulations, people come up and say, oh, there's a reason for all of this. There is a reason why you have cancer. There is a reason why you have a miscarriage. There's a reason why you are in jail. And what's implied there is that something is going to happen with that one event. But if you've lived through life, you know that's not always true. Sometimes trials and tribulations happen to us and we have no idea why they occurred. We don't understand God's complete and sovereign plan and so it doesn't help for us to say there is a reason for this suffering. Are you following me? We cannot say it's going to be because you're going to make the world a better place. You're, you have cancer or you, you have this illness because Your family's going to come to Christ. We cannot say that. That is only for God to know. And that is for only God to dictate. But what we can say is, God loves you. And God wants you to be close to him right now. And James understands this because what is his application of this verse? He doesn't say right away, so when you um, rejoice, just be happy. When trials come your way, be happy. If, if, you, if you're getting persecuted, if you're being thrown in jail, be happy. James doesn't say that. He knows. He knows that the world is difficult. So what does he say in the next verse, verse 5, what does he say? He say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. In trials and tribulations, the way we experience joy is by praying to God and asking for wisdom. And and I want to break that down a little bit. 
James does not say that during the trials and tribulations that you should pray for the whole event to change or for the outside circumstances to go away. Rather, God actually says, pray for wisdom. He, you ask God for your inner life to change, for, your, for you to be more aware of the situation and how you should ask. And I think there's a beauty in this. Because there, I think, I think three things happen when you begin to pray to God during these trials and tribulations. I think the first thing what, is that we acknowledge that we are weak. In these trials and tribulations, you acknowledge that you are weak. And brothers and sisters, there is great freedom in knowing that you are weak. There is great freedom. A burden is lifted up knowing that you are unable to deal with this trial and tribulation by yourself. And I thought, what is the best analogy? Because when we think of weakness, we also think, oh, that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. But as I was thinking about an example, the only one I could think of one was at the gym. The most annoying people at the gym are the ones who are weak but think they are strong. They are the worst. And why are they the worst? For many reasons. One is they try to do way too much. And when they do way too much, they often complain. They get injured. They make everyone else feel bad because they have this attitude of a standard in which how strong people are supposed to be. So they go around critiquing everyone, and they try to do it themselves, and they, be, they just make everything worse. And I think Christians, it, it behooves us to remember that we are weak. Who are the worst Christians? The ones that think they are strong. Who go around thinking that they can... Take on any trial. Take on any tribulations. If you just apply these three steps, if you just do these three things, surely you'll get over it. Surely the problem will be solved. But if we understand the gospel and if we understand our own human nature, we understand that we are weak. And the first sign of our weakness is when we go down to prayer and we say, God, help us. Second point, we don't pray for things, the outside circumstances to change. We pray for wisdom. And when we pray for wisdom, we finally understand that the issue at hand is complex. You see, we don't ask God for the answer. We don't ask God for us to solve it immediately. We ask for wisdom. Most problems in this life are not easy. There is not one solution to every problem. What's true for you may work, but it will not necessarily work in another situation. And each of our lives, we have so many different stories. We come from so many different backgrounds. We have so many different things we must deal with. That's why God says pray for wisdom. And when you pray for wisdom, you begin to understand, oh, this problem is actually tough. It's actually not as simple as I once thought. And again, there's great wisdom in that. 
There's great freedom in that. In most um, counseling sessions, when we are getting counseled, or we study other counselors, they say that usually most marriages are missing one ingredient. And it's different for everyone, but they're missing one ingredient, and everyone tries to apply that one ingredient, and it works for some, but it doesn't work for others. And people always think, they, oh, I have the answer for this problem. But it's never, ever that easy. It's always much more complicated. And God understands that, and he hopes that we understand that. And so that's why we need to pray for our weakness, in the midst of our weakness, and we must pray for the wisdom to navigate these things. And then what happens, lastly and thirdly, after you pray for wisdom, after you pray understanding that you're weak, God gives you the ability to strengthen in your faith. It is usually at these moments we see God clearly. There are so many times and moments we look back during our trials and tribulations and our sufferings, and all we can see is God. And we understand it was God who navigated us through that whole entire time. Though the situation may not have changed, though the circumstances may not have changed, we know that our heart has changed. And yet despite our circumstances, we come closer to God, understanding who he is and loving him more and more. It is with prayer that we truly see the face of God. It is when we get on our knees do we feel the presence of Christ and him navigating us through the perils of this world. And it is when you see God's face that you experience immense joy. How do Christians find joy in such tough situations? Show me a Christian who is still singing and celebrating amidst hardships, turmoil, and trials, and I'll show you a Christian who is praying continually. And so that is James, that is why James continues to exhort us in verse 6. He says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In verse 6, what James is talking about here is continually praying and expecting God to answer the prayer. He does not mean that, oh, my prayer will only work if I have 100% faith. That is, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is time and time again, as we pray, we must learn to depend upon the Lord and look for the Lord to answer. And as we continually do this, as we continually pray in faith, we grow stronger and closer to him. And the desire of James is for our hearts to be completely focused upon Christ and to be strengthened in our faith. That is the goal of James. And that's why he talks about money in the next verses. Most commentators or most people don't understand why this whole section of money is introduced, but I think it's pretty clear why James introduces the concept of money. I think he introduces it because money is one of the biggest trials that all people will face. And so James brings in two people. First, he brings in someone who is poor. It says the lowly brother here, but it's translated the poor brother. The poor Christian. 
Now, if you've been tracking with what I'm saying is, uh, what I've been saying, you would know that the person who is poor is under great duress and great trial and great stress. But what does James say? He says, don't reflect upon that. Reflect upon your exalted position in Christ. And so what do we say to the poor or those who are in poverty? It's not your fault. Oftentimes people will say that poverty happens because something, you are neglectful, you are irresponsible, or something happened. But the Bible knows that poverty happens. We don't know why, but it happens to people. And it's not because you are in sin. You happen to be in that situation, and we may not give an explanation, an answer why, but that's where you are. And so what God says is, please, kneel, ask for wisdom in this time. Pray to God. At the same time, James also addresses the wealthy person. And I know most people may not think of this, but being wealthy is a trial in itself. Oftentimes we'll joke like, well, I'd rather have that trial than the one of being poor. But I think that's because we still have the lens of earthly blessings. If we hear what James is saying, and if James is continually making us focus upon heaven, the ultimate goal is not being rich. The ultimate goal is being in union with Christ. And it is here where the wealthy struggle the most. They struggle the most because wealthy people begin to believe the lie that they have been wealthy because of their own hard work. They begin to believe that they are secure. They are self-sufficient. If I go out, I can buy anything. And so wealthy people are usually in the most danger of denying the faith. They are under great trials and stress to believe the lie that money is king. But God says both must pray for wisdom. Both must get on their knees and ask God to give them wisdom to navigate these trials. Being wealthy, yes, it's great. It's always a blessing and a curse. It is. And it's because we begin to not see Christ. It's because we begin to move away and believe that we are self-sufficient. The people who are in poverty also begin not to see Christ. They believe that their worth, that their dignity, that their problems will all be solved if they have money. Money is what clouds everybody's vision. But James says here, under these trials... Whatever trial you are in, count it joy because we are able to depend upon God. And that's why James concludes this portion by continually saying, those who are truly blessed are not those who have money, are not those who are in good situation. But he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That is the true blessed person. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James sets the tone. The whole purpose of all our lives is to see God face to face. To be in union with him. 
to hear the words from God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will do that. He will do that because of his son, Jesus Christ. James will go through a series of events and case studies and problems that all of us will encounter. And in all those encounters, he will never say, hope for the outside circumstances to change. He will always say, go back to Christ. He will always say, look into your own heart. He will always say, cling on to Christ with everything you have. He never gives simple solutions. He never says, here's a three-step plan. All he continually says is, look to Jesus. There you will find the true answers, the true way. For many of you, 2016, as you reflect back, might have been tough. You might still be going through the trials and the suffering. And and to this I say, count it pure joy. These trials and opportunities are tough. They are serious. And that's why I plead with you to pray to find that joy. Pray to God, the creator of the universe, the one who loves us so much that he would send his one and only son to die for us. Pray to him. And find that joy. He is willing to give. He is God who gives all the good and perfect gifts. And he will deliver. And for those of you who had a relatively easy 2016, I would say, reflect harder. Reflect harder. 2016 has been a tough year for most of us. And if you say it wasn't, you might be lucky 0.0% in which it wasn't. But it also means you may not be reflecting on what God is doing in your life, and you may not be reflecting of what's going on in us. And as 2017 approach, I look out and I see people who are hopeful, and I'm hopeful too. Not that trials won't come your way, because we will all endure trials this coming year. That is guaranteed. We will all have trials that will be more greater than us, more than maybe we can handle, more it will take us to our bone and our core, and we may not be able to handle it. And so my hope and prayer is not that you won't encounter any of these things, But my hope at the end of 2017 is that you would have prayed fervently. And that 2017, you would be able to look back and say, it was a tough year, but praise be to God. He has shown his face over and over again. We will endure great trials in 2018 and 2019. And it will continue on this side of glory. But we do not get discouraged. Rather, we find it pure joy that God will continue to deliver and beautify our soul. Believe that God is working in every single one of you. And no trial or tribulation will ever weaken that. ACC, continue to pray to God in 2017. 
so that you may find pure joy in him. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, oftentimes we just want to come to you and say, life is just too tough. And oftentimes there are points we just want to give up. And if we're real, there's oftentimes we want to doubt. But we pray, O God, that you would not hide your face. That we would continually be getting in our knees in hopes that we would see your face. Because we know that you desire your children to be weak so that you may be strong. And Lord, we invite that. As we look out into the world, as we look out into our problems, Lord Father, it seems that it's just too much. But thanks be to God that we have a God who loves us so much and who wants to bless us with so many gifts. And so I pray, we all pray, that we will continually look for you. That we would never forget that we are loved and that we are cherished because of your Son. Father, be with us as we move on from 2016 and 2017. We pray that as we continue to encounter our trials and tribulations, that we would find pure joy in them. Because that means we've been praying. And we know that you love answering our prayers. So we thank you, O God, be with us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.